Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 94. Psalm 94, hear now the word of our God. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. What does the Bible teach about vengeance? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we hear that, I think sometimes we hear, vengeance is bad. That's not what God says. He doesn't say vengeance is bad. He says vengeance is mine. And if, it, if it's God's, it's not bad. You can be assured of that. So if vengeance belongs to the Lord, then vengeance is not bad. Rather, God's point to us is, we are very bad at doing vengeance. Uh, The story is told of a monk in the Egyptian desert who was furious at how he had been treated. He visited an older monk and explained that he had been wronged and could not rest until he had vengeance. So the older monk said, my brother, let us pray. Raising up his hands, he prayed, Oh God, we don't need you. We can take vengeance ourselves. Amen. The younger monk immediately fell to his knees and begged forgiveness of his brother monk because he realized, Right, that would be a scary world. A world where vengeance is left to us. Because what happens when we take vengeance? Well, Maybe we go a little over the top and give them a little extra. Or in our lashing out, we hit the wrong person. 
And now they've got a claim against us, and the spiral keeps going down. Psalm 94 understands this. If the young monk had said, Abba, will you sing Psalm 94 with me? The older monk would have said, gladly. Because Psalm 94 asks God to bring vengeance and says, Oh God, this is too big for us. This is your job. Please make it right. Psalm 94 says, It's not right that the wicked kill the the widow and the sojourner. It's not right that people do wicked things. And so we confess that he will come with glory to judge both the living and the dead. When you ask God to take care of vengeance, you may be certain that he will do it properly. Because when we take vengeance, we overdo it. Sometimes we convict the innocent. Sometimes we let the guilty get away with murder. It's why we need Jesus to come with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Certainly, we should seek to do justice as far as we can in this life. Psalm 94 condemns wicked rulers for their failure to do justice, which means that rulers need to do justice. They need to do their best. But you see, the the principle of vengeance is one that creates a cycle that never ends. Psalm 94 recognizes that only the God of vengeance is able to make right all wrongs. That's where, when when you've done the best you can at justice, you need to just let the thing go and trust that God will make it right in the end. Our New Testament lesson comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Sometimes you hear even pastors saying that, uh, you know, the idea of God as a God of vengeance, oh, that's an Old Testament notion. Hear now the word of our God from Second Thessalonians chapter 1. <laughs> Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our God. Today we're concluding our overview in the, of, of how the creed sets forth the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we've been spending several weeks in this section on the creed working through who is Jesus and what has he done and we keep seeing in the way the creed handles this that who is Jesus and what has he done can't be separated from each other they also can't be separated from us because what God has done in Jesus is nothing less than unite us to himself and so therefore when the creed is talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that's not some sort of like oh abstract doctrinal discussion about something no it's actually about our salvation it's about who are we in Christ more than half the creed is focused on Christ because Jesus Christ is the center of our faith the creed started off by identifying Jesus as the only begotten son of God we confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God in three persons. And when we speak of Jesus Christ, we confess that he is the eternal Son of God. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He's of the same substance with the Father as regards to his deity, and of the same substance with us as to his humanity. He is true God and true man in one person. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And as we've been discussing his exaltation and glory recently, he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And now we come to where we are for today, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Last time we looked at the, the importance of the ascension of Christ. How the ascension shows us that Christ is indeed our advocate in heaven before the Father. That in Christ we, there is now one who, who shares our flesh. One who shares our humanity is now sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us as our advocate. And also the ascension reminds us that He has sent to us His Spirit as the counterpledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not things on the earth. That we now have access, we now have, we can enter into the heavenly Holy of Holies because the Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus. All through the Old Testament, all those visions of God they had always were God coming down because nobody could get up there. But then, John in the book of Revelation was told, come up here. Why? Because now, the Lamb who was slain is at the right hand of the Father. One who shares our nature is at the right hand of the Father. So now, John, even while he's on earth, can access by vision the heavenly of, the holy of holies. And so now you and I can enter into the heavenly holy of holies because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The ascension of Christ, like we saw last week, if if Jesus was just raised from the dead and still living on earth, it really wouldn't accomplish much. But now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And... Throughout the scriptures, when you talk about the right hand, it's the hand of power, the hand of judgment. 
in Psalm 80 in the prayer of confession, we heard that, that God had planted Israel with his right hand. And, and actually in that prayer, the, Psalm 80 talks about how, ask God to place his hand on the man of your right hand. So you could say that, that Jesus Christ is God's right hand man. And Psalm 110 is preeminently the psalm of Christ being seated at God's right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When the son of David sits at the right hand of God, what happens? Well, Psalm 110 verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So when God seats the Son of David at his right hand, when Jesus ascends to the Father and sits down at the right hand of God, that means that the Son of David is now ruling in the midst of his enemies. This is where you know, the New Testament portrays it, that the, the final enemy has not yet finally been defeated. We, are, we, we don't yet see everything under Jesus' feet, but that's what he's doing. He is put, bringing all things in subjection to him. Because he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And sometimes it may not look like it. Sometimes you look around you and you're like, okay, Jesus is king? This doesn't look like a place where Jesus is king. But if you actually, if you think about it, it's part of why I I love teaching the Sunday school class on patristic church history. Because when, when you think about what was the world into which the gospel came in the first few centuries... What the gospel begins to do is transforming Romans, in, not, not into moderns, but into Christians. They're ancient Roman Christians, and they're ancient Egyptian Christians, and they're ancient Indian Christians. As the gospel spreads throughout the, the, the world, the, the gospel begins to change people. I mean, we saw in the Sunday school this morning how up until the gospel got really rooted in, in Roman culture, the poor weren't really included in conversations about anything. But in Ambrose's preaching, the poor became part of that the people that we should pay attention to and take care of. And you see it in Gregory the Great, Bishop of Rome at the end of the 6th century, as he says, all people, even the poor, are made in the image of God. We're all equal by nature. Here's the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, saying, all people are equal by nature. Any differences between us are simply accidents of history. Jesus is sitting on his throne. You won't find just this, this is the, you, know, you won't find this in sort of all the cultures of the world. Many philosophies, many religions have all these caste systems and sort of there are those people, we don't really care about them because they're barely even people. Oh, and you can find all sorts of examples in Christian history where Christians fell short of what the gospel teaches, where King Jesus wasn't being listened to very well. But King Jesus is sitting on his throne, and King Jesus is at the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and governing all things. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he prays that, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What was that seating at the right hand for? 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And, Paul says, he put all things under his feet, echoes of Psalm 110, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the church doing here? Well, Christ is king at the right hand of the Father, but it's not that the church is the kingdom of God. The church, rather, is where the kingdom of God is beginning to take shape in the midst of this age. The the idea of kingdom is is a bigger category than just the church. The idea of the kingdom is, this is Christ's rule over all things. And so what is the church supposed to be for? Well, the church is supposed to be, you might say, the pilot plant of the kingdom. The church is supposed to be the sort of where the kingdom is beginning to take shape. As the gospel goes forth, that the kingdom is, is lived out here is as the kingdom continues to expand and grow. In, and this is where the, the, the problem with humanity is that humanity is, tries to put itself in the place of God. But the marvelous grace of God is seen in that God became man. In Jesus Christ, He, God became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that He is by grace. Uh, Peter tells us in Second Peter that through His great and precious promises, we have become partakers of, in the divine nature because we have been united to Christ by faith. The life of Christ, in my, my pastoral notes this week, I, I mentioned this, this strange phrase, uncreated grace. It's a strange phrase, which maybe, maybe the very strangeness of it is helpful to us. Because, wait, uncreated grace? What's, what are we talking about here? There's, there's, only, there's only one that is uncreated, and that's God himself. Exactly. Uncreated grace is God himself. Too often we just talk about all the good things, the good gifts that God gives. He gives us you know, food. He gives us family. He gives us good things. He gives us... But unless we are saying that He gives us Himself, we haven't yet really captured what the grace of God is. The grace of God is not just good things that He gives. That any deity can give you good things. But only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us himself. And if his life has become yours, then you have become united to the very life of God. And so this is what we mean when we speak of the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit as the gift of the ascended king. Because Peter tells us on the day of Pentecost that because Jesus received the promised Holy Spirit from the Father, he now pours out his spirit upon his church. And because we receive the spirit, because we receive the uncreated grace of God himself, therefore he gives gifts to his people. And God has given you his spirit so that you might bear witness to the glory of Jesus. But then also, in sitting at the right hand of the Father, he protects and defends us from our enemies. Jesus speaks of this in John 10 when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is the Good Shepherd, and as the Good Shepherd, He leads and feeds His sheep, and He protects and defends them against their enemies. No one has ever snatched somebody out of Jesus' hands. He has never lost one of his sheep, and he never will. And I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism asks it, but it says, What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? It doesn't just ask, what does it mean? But what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? And the answer they give is that in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Really... You could, this is simply paraphrasing what Paul says in Second Thessalonians 1. Jesus has already endured the final judgment that I deserved. He took that curse upon himself. And so all who believe in him, all his chosen ones, will share in his heavenly joy and glory. But, as Paul says it in Second Thessalonians, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is where you won't be surprised to hear Paul saying that the cross, that affliction, suffering, is what we should expect in this life. But that's where he says it's, it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's, there's, there's a way in which Paul's saying, yes, you are going to suffer unjustly. You are going to be innocent sufferers just like Jesus. And we should look to that day with hope because the day of judgment is the day of our relief. Because Jesus has taken upon himself the curse Therefore, when we reach the day of judgment, what is, gonna, what, what is God going to judge on the day of judgment? If Jesus has paid for all your sins, what's going to be left if you stand before the throne of God and, you, and, and, and you're judged according to what you did? At first you're like, oh, I got all those sins. And Jesus says, but, but yeah, that's why, that's why I died. Okay, so that, and I, yeah, I didn't really do all that well at doing, obey, right, that, that's why I died. What's left for God to judge at the judgment day when all your sins are forgiven? Only those good works that he created you to do in Christ Jesus. That's all that's left. So that's why that day is, I mean, judgment day holds no fear whatsoever for the Christian because Jesus has paid for all my sin, all my sins, not just some of them, not just most of them, not just like 90%, give you a little, maybe a little. No, all my sins with his precious blood. And so therefore we can trust Jesus to make things right. And that's why we leave vengeance to the Lord. When, when Paul speaks of, of the vengeance of, of Jesus on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, 
He's simply saying what the whole of Scripture is very consistent in saying, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, you know, Paul in Romans 12 had, had given us, gives us very clear instruction on how we're supposed to handle this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Paul says in Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice how... For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Notice that Paul doesn't say, do this because sort of because you 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 are really you know, hoping for good things for him. Actually, it's like no. Actually, you are going to be sort of making his judgment worse by which. I mean, it's like yeah, because and, and that's where sure. I mean, you can please hope and pray for that he that these people who will repent and believe the gospel. But that's where if they don't, I mean. They are digging their own hole deeper. And that's, you know, our, our personal response to those who afflict us must be to overcome evil with good. But we do this not because we are indifferent to justice. Far from it. We do good to those who have wronged us because we know that if they do not repent, God is going to destroy them. And... It is just for him to repay them for what they have done. This is where I, I think sometimes, it, perhaps those who have been through more horrific evils oftentimes have a better understanding of this than those who have lived fairly comfortable lives. Those who have lived comfortable lives often are uncomfortable with, oh, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. But, those who have experienced horrific evil understand that that has to stop. If that doesn't stop, this world is not going to go well. This is why, this is why judgment must come upon wickedness. Because otherwise, if, are things just going to stay this way forever? That's not, I mean, if you think about, if you, could, if you lived forever in this world the way it is right now, that's not far from describing hell. It's never going to stop. It's just going to be like this forever. And if you think about, okay, you know, struggles with depression and anxiety and sort of, and, and then take the, and if, if, and if you're going to live forever, well then, just imagine how much sort of, you know, all these wars that happen, but nobody dies, and so we just keep inflicting wounds on each other and making like, so you just like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds horrible. Because mercy does not say, you can get away with whatever you want. The mercy of God says, you deserve death for what you have done. And because I am just, I must punish sin. And so I will send my only begotten son, so that by the power of his divine life, 
he might bear the awful weight of my wrath and curse due to sin for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus. And that's where Paul turns in verse 7 when he says, to grant you relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Because in this life we do not yet have relief from our afflictions. We still await that coming day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, there are ways in which we can catch glimpses of this in this life. And I've, I think the, the, the story that I think illustrates this, at least I've, I've appreciated hearing, is, is the story of, of, of Sally McDowell, uh, Robert Jefferson Breckinridge's niece. Her, her father was the governor of Virginia. And when she was 19 years old, she married the sitting governor of Maryland. What could she know of suffering and affliction? Well, she married Governor Thomas against her father's wishes, and it turns out Governor Thomas, her husband, suffered from paranoid delusions. Emotional abuse doesn't even come close to what to describing what happened next. Only a few weeks into their marriage, he manipulates her into various false confessions, including one of adultery, which wasn't true at all. And then uh, she got pregnant, but miscarried, and he accused her of having an abortion in order to hide the offspring of her supposed lover. His obsessive controlling behavior escalates until finally, at the request of her father, the governor of Virginia, her uncle, Robert Breckenridge came to the governor's mansion in Annapolis, Maryland, and brought her back to his house in Baltimore, where the two governors met in his parlor to try to resolve the situation. Didn't work. Things got worse. Governor Thomas wound up publishing a lengthy pamphlet detailing his accusations against his wife. So if you want to read it, you can find it on Google Books. She then sues him, and her father as well, joins in the suit for slander. And that led to a suit for divorce, which, and in those days in Virginia, to, to get a divorce required an act of the legislature. So, yeah. So, dad goes to the legislature saying, hey, would you give my daughter a divorce? <laughs> Whew. Yeah, this was a fun story. But imagine poor Sally McDowell. At age 20, she's, she had an eight-month-long marriage followed by a five-year legal battle that left her reputation in shatters. At the age of 33, she wrote to a friend, You know not what it is to live with the spring of life broken, to live on and on amid the scattered debris of all that you valued in life, to have existence, but to spend it among the tombs of everything that made it a blessing. You know not what it is to have your pure name spoken by polluted lips, to have your high and cherished honor assailed by mouths whose very breath was infamy, and to have your grief, that sacred thing, so so deep as to be powerless even to throb out an appeal for mercy, denied the last poor privilege of decent privacy. This, all of this, has been the bitter experience I have garnered up in the very springtime of my life. But these are not the only lessons of the past. This seed time of tears has brought forth some precious fruit. When borne down by a sorrow too deep 
for the reach of human aid, however truly and affectionately rendered, my poor heart turned to listen to the tones of one who commended himself to me as being acquainted with grief. And by his gentle ministrations, I was gradually soothed into calmness and peace. A new light burst in upon my darkened heart. A new motive power was applied to it. I learned to cast the burden that was heavier than I could bear upon him who offered to bear it for me. And at last gathered courage and strength to take up, I hope unmurmuringly, my cross and bear it. Sally found comfort in the midst of her afflictions through the gospel, the, the good news that God himself had entered our humanity to bear her grief. And for the, yes, there are glimmers of beauty in the midst of affliction. I'll also mention that the friend she was writing to was a, a Presbyterian minister named John Miller. And after a several year courtship, for which we are very grateful because all they could do is write letters. Uh, <laughs> there is a 750-page volume of their letters that has been published. But they got married. And from all we hear, they had a good marriage, although it did cost him his pastorate because he was marrying a divorced woman, which in those days was verboten. But... I use the example of Sally McDowell because she sets up well how we should think about verses 7 and 8 to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Sally had every reason and in some ways every right to wish that her ex-husband would burn in hell forever. After what he had done to her? That's what he deserved. Maybe you know people like that as well. And Paul says, it's okay to say so. That's what he's saying right here. The Lord Jesus is going to bring justice. He will make all things right. And that includes inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which certainly includes those who do heinous things to the innocent. We are not going to obtain perfect justice in this life. And so we can leave vengeance to the Lord because our Lord Jesus will bring justice in the end. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing final judgment to the earth. And then in verse 9, we see the punishment for those who afflict you. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Paul often speaks of eternal life as God's free gift to those who believe in Jesus. He now uses a parallel construction to talk about the judgment, this eternal destruction. Their rebellion is against God. They do not know Him. They do not obey His gospel. And so their punishment fits the crime. They don't want to be near God. They want to be far away from Him. So He'll give them exactly what they want. Exactly what they deserve. What is meant by eternal destruction? It's, Paul says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction is simply the opposite of eternal life. John 17, Jesus tells us, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
if eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then eternal destruction is not knowing God. Eternal destruction is isolation from God, being away from the presence of the Lord. Eternal destruction means, again, the opposite of eternal life. It refers to perpetual ruin. If if you think about, even in ordinary English, you can probably see what I mean. If If a wrecking ball slams into a house, we say the house is destroyed. It doesn't mean that the materials vanished and ceased to exist. You now have a big pile of rubble where there was once a house. Eternal destruction is the same principle. It's there's a heap of rubble where there was once a person. That we dis, it's, it's the eternal disintegration. It's that those who exist in hell are eternally falling apart. We were created to be whole, to be well integrated, living in harmony with God, with others, with ourselves, and with all creation. Because of sin, we experience disintegration, alienation. We experience brokenness in our relationships with God, others, ourselves, and creation. All of us have experienced this in various ways, where alienation, even in our own bodies, you know, where our bodies are fighting against our, our, ourselves. But it also happens spiritually and emotionally. Undoubtedly, you've had the feeling, oh, I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? I feel like I'm not really in control of myself. All of these miseries of body and soul are a taste of hell. And God gives them to us as a warning, as a reminder of what comes to those who do not know God. That unless we bow the knee before Jesus, the one who entered our miserable world, endured the miseries of this life, death itself, and the pains of hell. And he, he did this for us so that we might live in him. But for the Christian, all of these miseries that we experience, all these disintegrations that we experience in this life, are a reminder of what we once were, apart from Christ. And you see this perhaps most painfully in the process of dying. I mean, there are those who, who linger a long time. Some people, toward, toward the end of their lives, are, are very fragmented. There's very little left holding them together. My dad's dementia was an example of that, as he was falling apart. But for those who are in Christ, their body and their soul both still belong to Jesus, in life and in death. He is our integrity. He is our wholeness. Even when we are falling apart, Jesus holds us together. Even when our body and soul are rent apart by death, Jesus holds us together. Because there is no eternal life apart from him. As Jesus said in John 17:3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because, as Paul says here in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. We say in the creed that Jesus shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Because he is coming with glory. Both the glory when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and the glory that will be revealed in his saints. Because Jesus calls you to 
repent and believe the gospel, to believe in him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Have mercy and, and by your Holy Spirit, call us out of our darkness into your light. May your grace work in each heart that we might know you, that we might know Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, whom you sent, that we might have life eternal in your presence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.